0: This is an ABC podcast. Hi there, welcome to Between the Lines with me, Tom Switzer. You can hear us on air, online, or via the ABC Listen app, or wherever you get your podcasts. These are the sounds of the military brass band playing what some people call Australia's unofficial national anthem, Waltzing Matilda. It's a story from the early settlement days of White Australia. The European workers, the fires they built, the sheep they stole and the police who caught them. Now songs like these are how we learned about the beginnings of White Australia. But the truth is it happened more than a century before Waltzing Matilda. Surely there are better ways to find out how it all began when European ships landed on Australian soil. My guest today says it's a fascinating story. Stay with us for that. Well, junior and high school students are rarely taught about the early British settlement of what we now call Australia, which, in my judgment, is a great shame, because it's a fascinating story, as a new book makes very clear. In Convict Colony, in my judgment, the best book of 2019, David Hill sets out how the British plan to settle our shores was a high-risk venture. After all, the new world of 18th century, well, that was dotted with failed colonies. New South Wales nearly joined them, and yet, thanks to luck, thanks to leadership, most notably Arthur Phillip, he captained the first fleet and became the governor of the colony. Thanks to all that, Sydney survived and thrived. It's a remarkable story of this settlement that beat the odds. David Hill's other books, of course, include 1788, The Brutal Truth of the First Fleet. He's had a long and distinguished career, including as a managing director of the ABC, chairman of the Australian Football Association, that's soccer, as well as head of the mighty North Sydney Rugby League Bears. David, welcome back to RN.
1: Nice to be here. Thank you.
0: Now, let's start with the First Fleet. Remind us why the British decided to settle Botany Bay as a penal colony in the mid-1780s.
1: They were desperate to get rid of surplus convicts. There was a crime wave in the second half of the 1700s in in England. Uh, The jails were overflowing. uh, The prison hulks were overflowing. And there was a big fear of disease spreading from uh, the jails and the hulks into the broader society. And uh, Botany Bay was chosen as a last resort and a pretty poor last resort at that. Uh, They just wanted somewhere to dump the
0: convicts away from England. Yes, well, Cook, of course, came to uh, the east coast of Australia, settled Botany Bay, saw that and thought that was a good penal colony, but the first fleet ended up in Sydney Cove. Explain why.
1: Well, uh, you're right about Cook. When the British sent the fleet of 11 ships and 1,500 people uh, to settle in Botany Bay as the, the penal settlement... Uh, All the British knew about Botany Bay was 18 years earlier, uh, Cook on the Endeavour with the botanist Joseph Banks Mm -hmm. had spent seven days in Botany Bay. That's all. That's all they knew. And it wasn't so much Cook. It was Joseph Banks, the botanist, Mm -hmm. who told a House of Commons inquiry that was desperately looking for somewhere to dump all these surplus convicts recommended Botany Bay, but Botany Bay turned out to be an absolute dud. And when the First Fleet got here in 1788, within 48 hours, they couldn't find enough fresh water, flowing water. Uh, They couldn't find fertile soil and they couldn't find shelter uh, for the ships. Uh, And so Arthur Phillip, on spec, uh, was rowed up uh, 12 kilometres north of Botany Bay and, and went through the Port Jackson heads Uh, which Cook had seen from out to sea. Cook had never been inside Sydney Heads. Uh, But uh, Philip went and had a look, and at least he found fresh water at at Circular Quay, the the tank stream. So he moved the whole fleet. Uh, Within within a week, uh, they moved from Botany Bay and settled in Sydney.
0: And intriguingly, at the same time they're in Botany Bay, uh, they saw some French explorers led by La Perouse. It's amazing. (laughs) What are the odds...
1: The only time Europeans had been in Botany Bay was Cook and Joseph Banks 18 years before. <laughs> That's right. The First Fleet are struggling against these headwinds to get out of Botany Bay on Philip's orders to move to Sydney. And as they're battling to get out of Botany Bay, they see two French ships mm. battling to get in. And it was the, the two ships, the Astrolabe and the Boussal of La Perouse. Never
0: to be seen again
1: after he left Sydney never to be seen again.
0: Now, this, of course, is at a time uh, when other European powers, we mentioned the French, but also the Dutch, the Spanish, the Portuguese, (laughs) they'd been trying to establish colonial settlements. But what a trip for the First Fleet. Nine months from England to Tenerife, Spain, Rio, uh, South Africa, and then all across the southern Indian Ocean, David, around Tasmania, up along the East Coast. But they didn't realise there was a gap between Tasmania, then known as Van Diemen's Land, and the mainland?
1: No, they didn't know, and it, it, and it was another fifteen years, um, or ten or fifteen years before Matthew Flinders and George Bass mm. uh, discovered the, the Bass Strait that separated uh, uh, what is now Tasmania and Victoria. And
0: by the way, the first fleet's uh, trip it went in the opposite direction to James Cook's first voyage, right? No,
1: Cook came Cook came uh, down through the Atlantic, and he went around the bottom of Tasmania, and he went to Tahiti. Ah, I see. After Tahiti, Cook came back uh, from east to west. Certainly, after Cook had been to Tahiti and discovered there were two islands of New Zealand, yes, he came
0: sailed <laughs> right southwest so, so we talk about, you know, we've recently celebrated the, the 50th anniversary of man going to the moon, but in many respects, this was more remarkable. Uh, this,
1: this was like sending today... Uh, uh, a thousand convicts to settle the moon. <laughs> it's incredible. They knew nothing about the place, and and it turns out they sent them to Botany Bay, which proved to be infertile and a dud, and they had all of these convicts who were totally unsuited to try and hack out a, a new life in the in the tough Australian bush. Bear in mind when they got into Sydney Cove, the gnarled Australian gum trees came right down to the water's edge. Wow. They couldn't even get on the beach. They had to hack their way up through this very dense, harsh
0: vegetation. This is after a long nine-month journey in the high seas. Yes. (laughs) Extraordinary. Cruel and hopeless place, seemingly. You tell stories of how several convicts escaped Sydney. What were they thinking? I mean, where could they possibly go? Well, um, a lot of them thought China was over the hill.
1: (laughs) And, in fact, the the officers of the First Fleet joked that uh, a lot of the convicts who made escape attempts to walk north of Sydney to, to China, thinking it was, it was connected to New South Wales.
0: My guest is David Hill, author of Convict Colony. Now, you also told the story of how two female convicts, they escape Sydney and they end up in India to set up a brothel and then later they meet another convict who escapes Sydney. What are the chances of that? Well, uh, why I wrote that story, apart
1: from being a ripper of a yarn... Uh, is that I wanted to demonstrate that uh, while New South Wales was chosen as the location for the convict colony, one of its attractions to the British is they thought the convicts could never escape. They're surrounded by dense bush and thousands of kilometres of ocean uh, and yet probably, certainly hundreds and maybe even thousands of convicts eventually escaped from Sydney. And this story you mentioned, that was probably the most colourful character for me in the whole story was an American seaman named Jacob Nagel. And uh, he had fought against the British in the American War of Independence, mm-hmm. was captured, was pressed into the, the uh, Royal Navy and, and came out on the First Fleet. He then joined the Merchant Navy and was on uh, a run from from England to Calcutta. And he told this fabulous story that when he arrived in Calcutta, he went to the highest class brothel. <laughs> And he bumped into two convict women <laughs> that he knew from Sydney. Extraordinary. And, and they had set up this high-class brothel. And he said he got good service and, and friendly <laughs> service uh, because they were a bit concerned he might blow their cover. <laughs> look, at the time, I've got to say, the East India Company, mm-hmm. which ran Calcutta and, and a lot of the, the Indian uh, trade to, to Britain, wrote twice to Sydney and once to London complaining of these these riffraff convicts that were lowering the tone of Calcutta. There were so many convicts from Sydney getting to Calcutta. Extraordinary.
0: I mean, that, that is a distance, especially in those days. Well, how they did
1: it was that increasingly with the settlement in Australia, there were more ships coming here, and often the convicts would be brought here, mm. successive fleets of convicts, on chartered ships from the East India Company, would drop the convicts off here and then go to India to pick up cargoes to take back to England. Wow! And the convicts were escaping on the same ships. Okay. Well, tell us then about Buckley in Tasmania. Well, who would have believed Buckley's mm. chance? <laughs> now, Buck, William Buckley. Um, the the British, largely because of their fear that the French were going to mm-hmm. settle in Australia, uh, in eighteen o three. So this is this is not long after the first fleet. Mm. Fifteen years. Yeah. Um, they sent David Collins, uh, who had been the chief judge of uh, the colony of New South Wales and the First Fleet, they sent him to establish a second colony in in what is Port Phillip or Melbourne uh, today. Mm. And um, when he arrived, they had uh, the same difficulties that the First Fleet did with Botany Bay. And Collins abandoned Victoria and sailed across to, to the Derwent in current-day Tasmania. Um, But a few of the convicts escaped and were never heard of again. It was 30 years, more than 30 years later, uh, when farmers from Tasmania took their sheep across and started unofficially uh, farming in what was southern Victoria, uh, that they came across an Aboriginal tribe and there was a white man amongst them. Mm. And it turned out... It was one of these escaped convicts from 30 years ago Fascinating. Before. And uh, it was William Buckley. And when they started talking to him, at first he, he didn't understand English.
0: Because oh, it had been forget- 30 years. Yeah.
1: 30, he hadn't used the language and he'd forgotten. And, and they offered him some bread and he recognised the word bread. And so the language came back to him. They, they finally took him with them That's right. uh, to Tasmania. He, he got a pardon in Tasmania. He lived in, until he was in his uh, 80s. Yeah.
0: Remarkable story. Well, back to Sydney Cove and those first few decades of settlement, I mean, you know, surely Philip, Hunter, King, Bly, these were the first governors of New South Wales, they must have surely thought that this was a hopeless exercise that London must eventually abandon. Because, I mean, we put it in context, the food, shelter, harvest, all in short supply, and that's not to mention flooding and excessive heat. David Hill.
1: Yes. Well, all four governors, um, I think, were concerned not to offend their political masters, because none of them wrote to say this is a hopeless case. Mm. But a lot of their colleagues did, mm. including, I think, one of the heroes of this story, um, John White, the, fir- the chief surgeon of the First Fleet, uh, you know, he wrote to friends in England and, and said, uh, look, hope is no more. You know, we're just gripped by continuing famine. The First Fleet nearly starved to death. So others recorded yeah. just how hopeless the situation was. And it was... Absolutely remarkable the first fleet survived at all, and would, would have starved to death, but for the arrival of the second fleet two and a half years later with more food.
0: First fleet arrives obviously in January 1788. The second fleet June 1790. The third fleet August 1791. So it's like nine month uh, periods yeah. here because it takes nine months, of course, in those days to get to Australia. You write, for instance, in early 1794, the colony had only two weeks' supply of slated meat when more arrived from England by a ship. Now it makes you think: if um, something happened to those ships, what would have happened then?
1: Well. The British were very, very naive in their their planning was, was meticulous. Uh, they had two years' supply of food on the First Fleet, uh, but they nearly starved to death. They were on reduced rations on and off for, for a decade and a half. It's remarkable they survived at all. And the problem was, and apart from the fact that the, the soil in Botany Bay was no good and Sydney's not very fertile either. It wasn't until they moved west of Sydney to Parramatta and the Nepean uh, and the Hawkesbury Rivers that they started to grow some decent harvests. There was another problem. The British were so keen to get rid of the convicts and while their planning was meticulous for the First Fleet and the Second Fleet, they sent no convicts with any farming experience. Mm. I mean, how they expected... The first fleet with 800 uh, convicts in the first fleet, and practically none of them with any skills or experience at farming. Although Philip
0: was a farmer, though, correct?
1: I think that may have been a factor why they appointed him, mm. because the Admiralty was unimpressed by Philip's appointment,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: it, and and I've speculated it was he had a farm in Hampshire, he knew a little about farming, but but he wrote and pointed out that the first successive harvests all failed, the English seeds didn't take, the first harvest. Produced enough grain to last them several weeks. That was it.
0: Now, let's talk about uh, the dire consequences for the indigenous population, especially as the British settlement expanded west of Sydney. Now, you mentioned Arthur Phillip. It's important to note that he himself, an enlightenment man, I suppose, he'd written of the importance of good relations with the Aboriginal people. It didn't turn out that way, though. No. Why? Well, not
1: only did he write about it, and we're, we're lucky that uh, Philip's own thoughts before he left England survive. And yes, he, he did show, uh, with some notable exceptions, considerable enlightenment. But he had also written instructions from King George III mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm.
1: that to develop favourable relationships with the local Aboriginal people. But it, it started to turn sour very quickly, um, uh, the the uh, local Aboriginal people suddenly they're invaded uh, with uh, almost a doubling of the local population. So suddenly you've got over a thousand settlers. Mm-hmm. There were only about fifteen hundred Aboriginal people living around uh, Sydney Harbour at the time, and uh, so there was rivalry for the food. Just over mm-hmm. a year after the arrival of the first fleet, an estimated half of the local Aboriginal population were killed. Mm-hmm. With the outbreak of a smallpox, that's ap- epidemic. right, epidemic. Now, uh, there's some conjecture about how did these smallpox uh, outbreak occur in the local Aboriginal community. It must have come with white man. Yes, and uh, there are these terrible stories and these pictures painted of uh, by the English officers uh, uh, that that the whole of Sydney's foreshore was littered with these dying. And dead bodies the one thing the aboriginal people learned very quickly was how contagious the smallpox was so they'd leave a dying person a man or a woman with a fire either side of them and, and uh, some water and get out of there for fear of uh, infecting the, the the whole local
0: tribe my guest is david hill author of convict colonies a new book about the first three decades of british settlement. Now, we've mentioned the early governors, Arthur Philip, Hunter, King, Bly, then Lachlan Macquarie, whom you call the father of Australia. Why?
1: I think the things, uh, when when Macquarie arrived, um, after 20-odd years, the colony hadn't developed much at all, and it did under Macquarie. Mm. And it also stabilised. Bear in mind, you had, for the first four governors, they were all naval, naval officers, Philip, Hunter, King, and then Bly, and they all had to work with a separate independently run military, Hmm. and there was great hostility and, and a lack of cooperation. Macquarie brought his own military, and the military that was there before Macquarie was horribly corrupt. John MacArthur, uh, and uh, the Rum the rum Corps, it mm-hmm, was called. Mm-hmm. Uh, they monopolised all the economic activity. They monopolised the, the lucrative uh, grog trade. They got all the land grants. They were wealthy farmers. Uh, and, of course, uh, when Bly came here as the fourth governor, it, it was the military that rose up and deposed him mm-hmm. in Australia's mm-hmm. only coup d'etat. Macquarie came with his own regiment and they sent the New South Wales Corps back to England, what was left of it. And so Macquarie didn't have a hostile army to deal with. And that was a big factor. The other thing was Macquarie was far more radical than his predecessors uh, when he said that once a convict, always a convict. I don't believe that. Mm -hmm. And uh, it put uh, Macquarie on an eventual collision course with England Mm. who were quite explicit that Macquarie had forgotten that the convict colony should be a centre of terror but Macquarie wouldn't agree, and Macquarie invited convicts and ex-convicts to dine at Government House, mm. upsetting not only London but, of, of course, the, the uh, emancipists here in, in, in
0: Australia. So Macquarie had a relatively progressive view. What was Macquarie, did Macquarie distinguish his views towards the Indigenous people from his predecessors?
1: Uh, no. Macquarie was guilty like his predecessors when it came a choice... And, and this is what led to most of the deaths of the Aboriginal people. Mm. The spread of farming, uh, first uh, west of Sydney to, to the Hawkesbury and the Pean Rivers, and it, it took the land, the source of food, the source of livelihood, the traditional lands from the Aboriginal people who had n- no food to hunt anymore, so they would raid the farms for the food that the farms had produced and the farmers would shoot them. And uh, it broke out into what David Collins, the judge, described as open war. It got worse during Macquarie's term when they finally found a way over the Blue Mountains and opened up the interior. And I think most of the uh, killing of the Aboriginal people in Australia wasn't official military genocide. It was the farmers, in much the same way at the same time, was happening in North America, as farmers spread out across the west uh, of the United States. The same thing was happening in in the opening up of
0: the interior of Australia. And the white farmer was, was clearing land with a gun. And for those listeners who've just tuned in, and those who know downtown Sydney, note that it was Macquarie who was responsible for naming the streets after the early governors and British lords. You think about George Street after King George, Pitt Street after Prime Minister William Pitt, Um, you know, obviously Philip, Hunter. All of that. It's extraordinary. Yeah, but he, that, that, was, that was
1: Macquarie. But, but Mac- Macquarie uh, didn't uh, forget himself. <laughs> or his wife, Elizabeth. Or his wife, Elizabeth. <laughs> so, I mean, the two great streets of Sydney, Elizabeth is one and Macquarie's is another. But when they when they crossed the Blue Mountains and, and they uh, started the settlement of Bathurst, 200 kilometres just about west of Sydney, yes. The two local rivers, one's called Lachlan and the other's called Macquarie.
0: (laughs) (laughs) What about Wilberforce, who was a leading proponent of ending uh, slavery, of course? Yes, well, he he named Wilberforce west of Sydney. Absolutely. Now, you're an enthusiast, David. I've noticed this about you. And some of your stories are known, to be sure, but you dig deeper. Primary sources dominate your endnotes, don't they? Yes. Very important. Let's bring this to the present. I'm 48. The only time I've ever studied... This period of Australian history was way back in year three, 1980. That was the only time I studied the the early Dutch and British explorers, Hartog, Tasman, Cook, all that. And it was the only time I studied the early Western settlement of Sydney Cove. Year three for me, so I was about eight years of age, was the only time the subjects were on the school curriculum. These days, David, I understand the subjects are hardly taught in classrooms across Australia. Why do we not teach this early history?
1: Uh, I think because uh, people find it hard to make it interesting, which is a tragedy. Uh, but a mate of mine who, who used to be the, the chairman of the New South Wales uh, Schools History Curriculum Committee, uh, I wrote a book about Federation, for example, and I said, "How do I make this interesting?" And he said, "Mate, you can't."
0: Aww. Well, well, you can. You,
1: can. Uh, you know, I just done and, that and well. this yeah. this is a riveting story. You, you're right in pointing out that I've I've relied for almost all of this book on the primary sources. We are lucky. In the 1890s, the Historical uh, Society of New South Wales got access to all of the surviving British files, which are so comprehensive, and put them in eight volumes of the historical record of New South Wales that goes from Captain Cook to about 1811. And there are 6,000 pages of the... Original documents mm-hmm. uh, of the of this settlement, and I've relied very heavily on that. Look, for example, and, and this has been lost in a lot of the subsequent history. They were so short of food and everything else in the first decades of the colony that Governor Hunter, John Hunter, Philip's successor. Uh, yes, this is more than ten years after the arrival of the first fleet. So this is uh, the end of seventeen. 17-
0: 98,
1: Mm -hmm. uh, after they arrived in 1788, Hunter wrote to England to say, we are so short of provisions of all types, he said, the entire colony is naked. Yeah, that's right. Now, I'd never come across that before. Fascinating. And yet there are three references in the historic records to Hunter complaining to London about the nakedness of the colony on one of those occasions he he gave evidence to a house of commons committee later he said one day he had 4 to 500 convicts working in the fields as naked as they were born it's a, a, what an image Extraordinary. that produces oh, i
0: know well <laughs> listen final issue next year is the 250th anniversary of captain cook's discovery of Eastern Australia, leftist groups are already threatening to disrupt the commemoration on the grounds that Cook was an imperialist invader. Of course, uh, about a year or so ago, we had statues of Cook being defaced. What do you make of all this?
1: I think that's unfair. I mean, it's part of our history, Uh, you know, whether you like it or not. The one thing I think uh, the dissidents have got a good argument is the 26th of January is Australia Day. Mm. Um, there's
0: nothing. You'd special- like to see that changed?
1: Well, I wouldn't like to see it changed, but I understand why people mm. uh, hold it up for criticism. But my, my point would be uh, that there's nothing special about the 26th of January. It wasn't the day that the First Fleet arrived. Mm. The First Fleet arrived on the... 18th to the 20th of January in Botany Bay. In Botany Bay, yeah. And it wasn't until the 26th that they had finally got everybody <laughs> right. to Sydney, and Arthur Phillip stuck a flag in the ground and and declared it uh, the the settlement of Sydney, named after Lord Sydney, the colonial secretary.
0: Yes, but back to this question about the protesters complaining about uh, commemorating Cook and Phillip and all of that. John Howard, among others, has made the point that it's a strange denial of reality to say these people, you know, Cook, Philip, the Hunters, the MacArthur's, the Macquarie's. I mean, is it strange to say that they're not suitable subjects for study or remembrance because we've decided we don't agree with their stance on certain issues? That seems to be the view of a lot of younger people who are ashamed of the Cooks and the Philips. David Hill.
1: Oh, well, I, I don't see any difficulty in acknowledging the historic significance of figures like Cook, particularly Cook. No, I don't
0: see any difficulty at all. And there's new books coming out. We've got a new book by Peter Fitzsimons on Cook and a new book on Lachlan Macquarie. So there's clearly an appetite there, but we uh, don't hear this in the school curriculum.
1: But the fact is Cook was never a significant figure on Australian soil. Uh, Cook landed twice in Australia, once for seven days in Botany Bay and then, oh, three times, and then a couple of months later he was seven weeks fixing up the Endeavour that had been ripped open on the Great Barrier Reef at what is now Cooktown on the Endeavour River. Mm-hmm. And then in Cape York, uh, Cape York Peninsula, he stopped in Possession Island, stuck a flag in the ground and declared uh, all, of the, all of what he had seen in the name of King George III in Britain. and Britain. That, that was it. So, <laughs> but, but Cook was one of the world's greatest, probably the greatest uh, explorer navigator in history, So forget about British and everything mm. else, mm. Uh, Cook was a remarkable
0: uh, but when explorer. You, but back to the point about the first three decades of British settlement, which is really your subject here. Yes. Aren't you just shocked and surprised that we don't hear this, read this history in the school curriculum?
1: Yeah, because it's such a ripper of a story, I'm surprised yeah. that it's been swept away. Well,
0: this, David, is a reminder that the past is another country in which matters were done differently, but it's still worth studying, right? Yep. Wonderful to see you again, David.
1: Lovely to see you.
0: David Hill, he's author of Convict Colony, The Remarkable Story of the Fledgling Settlement That Survived Against the Odds. That's published by Alan and Unwin. Oh, had I the wings of a turtle dove I'd soar on my pinion so high slap bang to the arms of my polynove Dinner sweet presence I die. Well that's it for the program this week thanks for listening and if you'd like to read David Hill's book of course you can find it on our website abc.net.au slash just follow the links to Between the Lines. Now to hear this or any other episode again why don't you download the ABC Listen app. You can subscribe there or wherever you get your podcasts. Now join us next week on Between the Lines with Jenny Hewitt, Judith Sloan and Stephen Loosely. We'll look back at the political year that was 2019. The good, the bad, the ugly, the winners and the losers. I'm Tom Switzer. Thanks for joining me on Between the Lines. Hope you can tune in next week. See-